Hello and welcome to our first podcast from the research team investigating Flint water at Virginia Tech. After the city of Flint cut off ties from Detroit water, it started pumping and treating water from the Flint River. Among other problems, Flint's water is causing lead to come out into drinking water from the service lines that connect water mains to consumer homes. Lead is the best known neurotoxin and cause severe learning, neurological and developmental disabilities in both fetuses and children under the age of seven. The lead and copper rule was therefore introduced in 1991 to protect citizens from being exposed to lead leaching from either pipes or plumbing fittings into drinking water. To talk more about the lead and copper rule, we are joined today by Dr. Yana Lambrinidou, founder of the nonprofit Parents for Non-Toxic Alternatives, an adjunct assistant professor in the Science and Technology Studies program at Virginia Tech. Yana is a medical ethnographer by training, an alumnus of Smith College, and received her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. She has conducted extensive research for over eight years in the 2001-2004 Washington, D.C. lead and drinking water crisis that exposed wrongdoing and unethical behavior on the part of engineers and scientists in both local and federal government agencies. She's also co-principal investigator on a grant from the National Science Foundation towards reforming engineering ethics education that has helped establish a very successful graduate level class called Engineering Ethics and the Public at Virginia Tech. Yana, thank you so much for joining us. Sid, thank you so much for having me here and thank you for the very important work that you and your colleagues have been doing in Flint and helping uncover some of the truths uh, around the lead levels that uh, have been coming out of people's taps. Uh, it's uh, it's really a pleasure to be here with you today, and I'm really excited about this podcast. <laughs> so let's begin with the obvious. What is the lead and copper rule, and why does it concern an average U.S. citizen? The lead and copper rule is the federal regulation that was passed in 1991, so almost 25 years ago, to protect consumers from lead in tap water. I can think of four main reasons why the lead and copper rule should concern everyone, and especially pregnant women and caretakers of infants and young children. The first reason is that lead is the most extensively studied environmental contaminant, and today we know that even low-level exposures can cause irreversible health harm. So in fetuses, lead exposure can cause miscarriage and stillbirth, in young children, it can cause hyperactivity, increased aggression, brain damage. In adults, it can cause reproductive problems, hypertension, kidney problems, and the like. So lead is definitely not good. The second reason I think the lead and copper rule should concern us all is that lead in tap water is really far more common than people think. It comes primarily from lead in plumbing materials, so mostly lead service lines that carry water from water mains out in the street uh, to our individual homes, lead containing brass fixtures, and lead solder that is the, the glue, if you will, that uh, was used for many, many years to connect different plumbing components together. Homes built before 1986 
are very likely to have one of these lead-bearing plumbing components. So likely to have either a lead service line or lead solder, lead-bearing brass. Homes built after 1986 when lead service lines and lead solder were officially banned are still likely to have lead-bearing brass that can cause very serious lead and water contamination even in brand new buildings. Lead-bearing brass was actually banned uh, two years ago in 2014. So most buildings today in the United States uh, have uh, lead-bearing plumbing components that can pose a risk to human health. The third reason I can think of is that there is a national mantra, if you will, that is not only embraced, but I could say, one could say, perpetuated by the medical community, public health community, environmental health community. And that mantra is that lead contaminated water is only a secondary source of exposure to lead and that in fact when we're trying to protect children from lead we should really be looking primarily at lead containing paint and dust in reality this is really an ideological position it is not a science-based condition um, position and in fact uh, when you look at fetuses and infants dependent on reconstituted formula, if there is lead in their drinking water, then um, they are likely to uh, be exposed to this lead uh, even on a daily basis and uh, uh, maybe even multiple times a day. One of the things that I have found in um, talking with people about lead in drinking water is that many folks are surprised to hear that lead in water comes in two forms, soluble lead, which is like sugar dissolved in water, and lead particles, which is little small pieces of lead solder or detaching lead rust. And these small pieces can actually contain astronomical levels of lead that can spike an individual's blood lead levels uh, very, very quickly and acutely. Lead particles in and of themselves have been linked to childhood lead poisonings, uh, both in North Carolina and Massachusetts. And the last reason that I think that the lead and copper rule ought to concern us all is this. The lead and copper rule is a very unique regulation in that it renders consumers partly responsible for protecting ourselves from lead in drinking water. Most people don't realize this. Even though the lead and copper rule is very clear that no amount of lead in water is safe for human consumption, It also allows for every building in a water utility service area to dispense up to 15 parts per billion lead. And it allows for up to 10% of buildings in a water utility service area to dispense any amount of lead whatsoever. Many people who hear this are are first stunned uh, that uh, this is what the the regulation allows and then they kind of decide they're going to take the issue into their own hands and they say I'm just going to go have my water tested just to be sure that all is okay. But the one thing to remember is that a one-time water test for lead may not really capture the entirety 
of, uh, of the lead problem if there is one. Lead release tends to fluctuate during the day and also lead particles tend to release erratically and sporadically. So you could conduct just one single lead in water test and see results that seem low or even say there's just no detectable level of lead in the water and yet the next time you turn on your tap you could really have just a lot of lead released and, and uh, uh, enter into your drinking water glass or cooking pot. So for all these reasons and I'll summarize them again that lead is very harmful that lead in water is a far more a common problem than we often think, that it can be the primary source of lead for fetuses, infants, and young children, and that the lead and copper rule does not ensure that lead in water levels at any individual home are going to be low. For all these reasons, I think that the lead and copper rule should concern everyone, and especially pregnant women and caretakers of infants and young children. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about the history of the lead and copper rule and why it was promulgated in the first place? Sure. Lead was in the very first group of drinking water chemicals that the federal government targeted for regulation. It was in 1925 that the U.S. Public Health Service set a standard of 100 parts per billion lead that applied to the point where the water leaves the treatment plant and enters the distribution system. So the standard applied to a point where it's actually very rare to find problems with lead. It did not apply to lead levels at the tap in people's homes. Now, fast forward to the early 1970s. Several influential studies reported widespread problems with the safety of drinking water across the country. And in response, Congress passed the Safe Drinking Water Act of 1974 to assure that water utilities met minimum national standards for the protection of public health. At first, EPA adopted 50 parts per billion as the maximum allowable concentration of lead in drinking water. But again, the standard was applied to the point where the water leaves the treatment plant. So that is really not a public health protective standard. So lead corrosion and, and people's exposure to lead in drinking water really went simply undetected. But then two key developments paved the way for a more robust regulation. First, the National Academy of Sciences made the case that this 50 parts per billion standard was just really not protective enough, and they called for a, a lower and stricter standard. And then EPA issued an estimate that really shocked people. And um, what it was is that as many as 250,000 children had suffered measurable IQ losses as the result of being exposed to uh, drinking water containing lead. In response then, Congress passed three federal statutes. In 1986, uh, it passed the lead ban which banned the use of solder containing more than 0.2% lead by weight and pipes containing more than 8% lead by weight. In 1988, 
It passed the Lead Contamination and Control Act, which banned the sale of drinking water coolers in schools that uh, either contained lead solder or contained um, lead-lined tanks. And then in 1991, Congress passed the Lead and Copper Rule, which required utilities to monitor lead at consumer taps and take steps to prevent or remediate widespread, widespread contamination. What's important about the lead and copper rule is that it was really the first federal regulation that expanded the Safe Drinking Water Act's, Act's reach to consumer taps. I think that this is one of the reasons that the lead and copper rule is a controversial regulation and that one could argue is fiercely resisted and uh, oftentimes I would say undermined by water utilities to this day. So based on what you just said, it seems that it is the consumer's responsibility, at least partly, uh, to make sure that their family doesn't get exposed to high levels of lead. Um, so it seems that the law isn't exactly ideal. Um, what parts do you think need additional work? Uh, also, have there been actual cases where the law wasn't able to help fulfill what it was designed for? There are many parts to the law that are not ideal. I will mention three just to give you an idea, but there, there are many more parts to this law that are marred with weaknesses. The first part that I think is far from ideal is what I mentioned earlier, that a water utility can be in compliance with a lead and copper rule, even when every single home that it uh, samples for lead dispenses up to 15 parts per billion lead, and even when up to 10% of homes it samples dispense any amount of lead that could place residents at grave risk. The second weakness to the rule that, that I see and that troubles me quite a bit is that the tap monitoring that uh, is required is really not designed to capture the greatest public health risk from lead, which is lead particles. The lead and copper rule requires utilities to take only one sample per target tap. And as we said before, this can miss very serious problems with erratic release of lead particles and can obviously leave many people uh, unprotected from serious and high exposures to lead and water. And the third weakness that, uh, that I see and that uh, really concerns me is that the top monitoring that's required under the lead and copper rule is not designed to capture lead from lead service lines. It's not designed to uh, sample the water that um, is sitting in lead service lines overnight uh, and that is likely to contain very high amounts of lead and to expose consumers to high concentrations and um, uh, very uh, serious uh, concentrations of lead. Recent studies suggest that uh, if water utilities were actually required to capture that water, the water that uh, was sitting in, uh, in lead service lines overnight, 
that in fact 70% of water utilities that have lead service lines would not meet the standard set by the lead and copper rule and would need to take remedial measures to address the problem. So what this means is that in the majority of water utilities that have lead service lines, uh, consumers are routinely being assured that the, the, uh, their water is uh, okay, that it meets all federal standards in relation to lead, when in fact they may be getting exposed routinely to uh, very high concentrations from uh, uh, lead in lead service lines. So yes, there absolutely have been cases and there are cases uh, where the law wasn't able to help fulfill what it was designed for. Uh, Flint, Michigan today, for example, a utility with lead service lines is just the perfect case of this. Your nonprofit, Parents for Non-Toxic Alternatives, has been on the forefront of the Washington, D.C. lead and drinking water crisis for several years now. Could you tell us some highlights of your long and arduous journey so far? PNA entered the D.C. lead crisis full force in 2007 when the D.C. mayor announced that all taps at all 120 plus public schools would be tested for lead in water. This was three years after the city's historic lead in water contamination, the 2001-2004 contamination. And it was a time when all official messages were that our water was safe to drink and that we no longer needed to take any precautions and all of that. It was, it was a good day, it was a good time in terms of lead in water in DC. But Mark Edwards uncovered that some testing at some schools had revealed continuing problems with lead in water and that the city seemed to have kept quiet about it. So the mayor's initiative was really just a bright light of hope for, for us because it really gave us the sense that, you know, the city had was gonna was taking this problem seriously and it was going to investigate and and going to really find out if there there is really a problem and how extensive it is. But here's the twist. In preparation for this massive testing round, the mayor's office sent out this citywide email requesting flushing volunteers. So requesting, you know, DC residents to go to the schools and to help officials flush taps the night before sampling. So as you can imagine, People rush to sign up to do this because, you know, who wouldn't want to support an effort that, uh, you know, is that aims at uh, protecting children's health? And of course, we all assume that this flushing of taps was something that needed to be done for proper testing. But then I learned from Mark that flushing is, in fact, a remedial measure that you take to clean out pipes once you know you have a problem, not before you sample to see if you have a problem. Flushing is a little bit like, uh, you know, vacuuming uh, a room right before you test it for lead and dust. It's, it's just a, a deceitful way uh, to go about uh, any type of serious uh, sampling uh, regime. So 
the amazing thing was that in this process of really trying to figure out exactly what was going on and what the city was doing, we finally managed after dogged efforts to obtain the actual uh, sampling protocol. And this protocol included not a three minute flush or a five minute flush or even a 10 minute flush. And those are pretty extraordinarily long uh, times to flush taps, you know, the night before sampling. But the, for this specific testing round, the city instructed every school to flush one main tap for 45 minutes uh, before the night before sampling, and then every other tap for 5 to 15 minutes. So imagine just how many people were needed to go into every single school and at every single tap and to be opening taps and, you know, pushing uh, buttons on uh, water coolers and things like that to really clean out the types, the, the pipes before the, before the sampling. The, the deceit in this case just really just shocked me. I mean, it, it involved recruitment of the very people who were the most concerned about possible contamination and presumably who were the most committed to protecting DC children from exposure. So recruiting these people to help the city empty out, clean out evidence of lead before the actual sampling event. I mean, this happened and I was just at first in complete disbelief and then so outraged that at that point my commitment and PNA's commitment to letting water and addressing it and exposing the wrongdoing uh, surrounding it was just cemented. Now, I can mention very briefly some of the most important fixes, if you will, that I think that we were able to achieve after many years and thousands of volunteer hours of work. But none of these fixes came from PNA alone, and I don't think any organization alone can address such big problems in, in any city. We have really just been one member of a much larger, larger coalition of groups uh, that uh, has included affected DC residents like Satu Hase Webb, Liz Pelsiger, Peter Mott, and then organizations like the Alliance for Healthy Homes, the Water Alliance, Clean Water Action when Paul Schwartz was there, NRDC when Eric Olson was working on lead in water, Lead Safe DC when Harrison Newton was there, and others. Our successes would also not have been possible without the tireless scientific support from Mark Edwards at Virginia Tech. So here go some highlights of what we've been able to achieve um, in Washington, D.C. First, we discovered that for regulatory compliance purposes, the D.C. water utility was using a sampling protocol known to hide lead. No surprise there, right? <laughs> and was misleading us about the safety of our water. And through many efforts, we really managed to have this protocol corrected. Second, uh, I mean, again, through just long and, and hard efforts, we helped expose that DC's intensive remedial program of partial lead service line replacement, so where only a part of a lead service line is removed and another part is just left untouched, that that was not really a remedy at all because it exposed many residents to even higher levels of lead at the tap than they had to begin with. 
this discovery and the expose that we managed to do on the ground resulted in the abrupt termination of DC's multi-year lead service line replacement program. And subsequently, I think, led to a national conversation about the possibility that partial lead service line replacement, which is the lead and copper rule's main remedial measure, believe it or not, might actually need to be banned. Thirdly, we discovered and exposed irregularities with how DC was sampling for lead in water in our public schools. And we succeeded in forcing the city to acknowledge and address, in fact, serious contamination problems, despite all of the city's efforts to hide them. And now we are being told and assured uh, that uh, DC public schools install and um, replace on a regular basis lead certified filters at every tap that has lead problems. We also created a blog exposing serious problems and rampant professional misconduct in relation to lead in DC's drinking water. And a few months after launching this blog, the DC Water Utility finally replaced its general manager and took numerous steps to change the corrupt culture that uh, had been created uh, at the DC uh, Water Utility. Today, DC Water, the, the DC's Water Utility, I mean, DC's Water Utility is not flawless by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a far better utility than it was decades ago. And I think that when it comes to lead in drinking water, it's, it's, it's also has become a national leader in, in lots of ways. And finally, through our coalition's efforts, we succeeded in ensuring that environmental risk assessments at the homes of DC children with high blood lead levels include testing for lead, not only in paint, soil, and dust, which is the, the protocol that's embraced in most areas across the country, but that it also includes testing of lead in drinking water. Thank you for that. In addition to evaluating and implementing water treatment options, do you have specific advice on public engagement and communication for authorities and engineers at utilities and government agencies when they are dealing with lead and copper compliance challenges? When the public's health is in your hands, I believe that you have a moral obligation to communicate clearly and honestly all the information available to you about actual or highly likely health risks in the drinking water. Nowadays, there are just so many ways to reach consumers, both through mainstream and social media. Not educating the public about how the lead and copper rule works and what any specific compliance challenges might be for, for a water utility, I think is a misuse of water utility power that from a utility's perspective maybe seems convenient or expedient, but from a consumer standpoint can be downright dangerous. How many consumers realize that if they want full protection from lead in drinking water, they themselves must take some action. That in fact, the federal regulation that was passed almost 25 years ago to protect the public from lead at the tap 
is not foolproof and does not guarantee that uh, the public is really protected from serious harm from lead in water. Under the lead and copper rule, I think that public education, the, the, the rules public education provision, is very, very weak. And, it, you know, if you look at exactly what it is, um, it consists of a short and I'd say quite nebulous statement about lead that appears in a in an annual water quality report that includes all sorts of other information and that most consumers uh, report to never read. This has deprived, I think, the vast majority of consumers from information that is essential for informed and public health protective decision making. I personally believe strongly that the shared responsibility aspect of the lead and copper rule must be reconceptualized quite radically as a true partnership between utilities and consumers that gives consumers all the facts necessary to make effective decisions about how to best prevent exposures from lead in tap water. And I think the first step and the, the, and the most important step right now is for this public education provision to inform all consumers that we are partly responsible for protecting ourselves and our families and our children from lead and drinking water. That was very helpful. Uh, you were on the National Drinking Water Advisory Council Lead and Copper Rule Working Group uh, over the past year where the group was entrusted with the task of informing the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency with recommendations on amending the lead and copper rule. What were the findings of this group and how would you think they help or not help better the law and its potency? Yeah, the, the work group was convened in 2014 to develop recommendations for EPA's upcoming revisions to the lead and copper rule. The group's final recommendations were completed just a few weeks ago, and in November, they're going to be reviewed by the National Drinking Water Advisory Council, which will then make a final set of recommendations to EPA. The work group's document is available, um, and I believe anybody can access it. I mean, it's long, and the details are many, so I will just limit my comments to just a few points. The work group agreed on many key issues. For example, that lead service lines, which constitute a significant lead source and pose a serious and permanent risk, to human health must be fully replaced, that the public education provision of the rule must be strengthened, that uh, water treatment to prevent corrosion of uh, lead-containing plumbing materials must be improved, and that utility monitoring of lead in water in consumer homes must be revised to become easier to implement and more meaningful and, and more effective. When the group sat down to actually flesh out these very good ideas, we ended up with advice that from my perspective is marred with anemic requirements and 
regulatory loopholes and clauses that seem to undermine the recommendations intent and, and presumptions that seem to go against current scientific understanding about lead in water. So here's just one example. The work group recommended that all water utilities proactively replace lead service lines fully, whether they're in compliance with the lead and copper rule right now or not. And this was quite an extraordinary recommendation to make, and I think very much a step in the right direction. But as it is actually written, this recommendation does not make the replacement of lead service lines mandatory. So what it makes mandatory is that utilities demonstrate that they're making an effort to replace lead service lines. The recommendation was built on the, the presumption that water utilities do not have legal authority to replace lead service lines fully because a portion of every service line sits in private property, which again, the presumption is cannot be touched without homeowner consent. But this is not a substantiated presumption. In fact, in some jurisdictions, water utilities may very well have authority to replace lead service lines on private property or to replace private property plumbing that poses a substantial health risk to consumers. I propose that we ask EPA to investigate what legal authority different water utilities do have to conduct full lead service line replacements, but the work group didn't go for it. So as the recommendation stands today, a utility that can show that it's making an effort to convince homeowners to agree with full lead service line replacement, and, and this, this homeowner agreement would, uh, for most uh, utilities, um, would also involve homeowner commitment to paying a, a pretty good amount of money uh, to have the private side of the line replaced. So that, you know, when a utility can show that it's making such an effort, it's reaching out to uh, consumers and it's trying to replace lead service lines fully, then it will be able to pass regulatory requirements. Whether or not their effort is honest, uh, whether or not uh, they're actually uh, able to assist homeowners to pay for the private side replacement of the line, whether or not in the end they actually succeed in pulling out the lines fully. Um, I think that most people would agree that a federal regulation that requires regulated entities to show that they're trying to do the right thing rather than that they're succeeding in doing the right thing is not only weak, but probably also inappropriate, especially when we're talking about uh, a, a very serious uh, environmental contaminant uh, such as lead. There are many more examples like this one. And although I embrace all of the work group's stated goals and visions for a stronger lead and copper rule, I believe that the recommendations ultimately developed by the work group serve water utilities far more than the public's health. Let's shift gears and move to Flint. Uh, while we were testing uh, at homes, uh, there was this one home where we found lead levels as high as 
13,200 parts per billion in their tap water and the majority of the home plumbing is plastic. Um, what is the significance of 13,200 and how should a layperson look at this? As a layperson myself, I can tell you how I would look at this. Water with 5,000 parts per billion lead is classified as hazardous waste. I mean, it, it must be disposed of using hazardous waste precautions. 13,000 plus parts per billion lead in water is more than twice the hazardous waste level. So it gives me pause to think about the harm that such an exposure could cause a fetus or infant or young child or, I mean, if you think about it, anybody really. I think that anybody living in this home no matter what their age would probably want to look very seriously into having their lead service line replaced fully um, using maybe lead certified filters or even doing both let's talk a little bit about policy and research now um, we were hoping you could talk about your journey working up close and personal with the lead and copper rule uh, for more than eight years. What are some insights uh, that you gained into the policy process and how do these different stakeholders interact on such higher rungs? I think that the water testing that you and your colleagues did in collaboration with Flint residents has been absolutely catalytic in shaking up and awakening into action a complacent and even negligent political establishment. I think that it has also been catalytic in informing a whole entire city about a very, very serious problem with lead in its water that without your efforts would probably have stayed hidden for a long time to come. So your work in this regard has been extraordinary. I also think that the question you ask is critically important and one that anyone involved in what's called citizen science ought to be asking. I, I mean, I don't know all the details of the Flint Initiative, so I will just make a couple of general points. I think that depending on how it is implemented, citizen science can empower, disempower, or downright exploit the public. A mutually beneficial collaboration I think requires careful thought and very careful deliberations. There are some communities that are really actually quite well organized and have terms and contracts that they require scientists to abide by. And then there are other communities that really don't have such a thing. So how scientists work with those communities, especially when they're undergoing a crisis, I think demands extra care and extra thought. Either way though, I think that citizen science projects require asking some hard questions and answering them honestly. For example, who is really helping home and why? Who is really benefiting and why? Who gets to decide if the help is flowing appropriately, and if the kind of help that's being offered is the kind of help that's desired by communities or that's desired by communities at all times. Who is the target audience for the research and why? Or 
what say does the public have in what questions the research asks or how the research is conducted or how the results are uh, uh, disseminated or, or reported or what ownership of the research the public will have. More questions come up for me, things like, um, you know, what is the power differential between the different stakeholders involved, and especially between scientists and individual communities suffering from environmental contamination? What resources do scientists have who are coming in, and what resources does the community have? And how can these resources come to complement each other or even elevate each other? What's the scientist's appropriate role when the situation involves not only science, but also people's health, public policy, local politics, diverse groups of individuals with possibly very different histories and kinds and degrees of power? When scientists enter a highly complicated terrain, is there a line that can be crossed whereby the scientific authority that society accords to scientists is somehow expanded to authority about even non-scientific dimensions of a case? And the scientific voice ends up becoming the loudest or is assigned the greatest value? Is there a space, like a, a public space, if you will, that is appropriately left solely to communities themselves to navigate and negotiate. I'm thinking that a, a crisis like the one in Flint, as tragic and unacceptable as it is, is also an opportunity for local communities to acquire new skills and knowledge, possibly to acquire new unity, uh, to, to claim a seat at, at all negotiating tables, and to demand that their presence is visible and that their voices are heard not only during the current crisis, um, but, but also during all subsequent events that affect the public's life and health. So in essence, I think that crises such as these might be opportunities to shift the very structural imbalances that allowed the crises in the first place to occur. So to what extent are scientists and engineers trained to tend to these issues? Is it possible that their very involvement can end up taking away or even yanking local fights and struggles away from local communities? There's information out there about how to engage equitably with communities. And I think my concern is that the scientific enterprise, as I see it today, very much from the outside, is that it seems to assign a pretty high value on getting. Getting funds, getting data, getting patents, getting publications, getting recognition, getting awards, promotions, prestige, the whole thing. For citizen science to be done well, I think that it requires of scientists to embrace possibly a new mind frame, that of giving, which might also require maybe giving up on some of the visibility and recognition and awards and rewards that are so deeply embedded in scientific work and research. I think that this would necessitate a cultural shift that probably can't take place overnight, but I, I'm sure it can take place. So 
the risk I see in the proliferation of all sorts of projects under the umbrella of citizen science is that they may sound collaborative and, and seem mutually beneficial, but in the end, they may actually reinforce existing knowledge and power imbalances. I have no doubt that citizen science can be done and that it's being done well, but I do think that it poses challenges and challenges that are very, very serious, that are worth not only scientists and engineers' attention, but the attention of diverse publics and of the government, uh, local and, uh, and federal government and a funding agency, and challenges that are also really exciting and, uh, and worth uh, taking on. Let's talk a little bit about policy and research now. Um, we were hoping you could talk about your journey working up close and personal with the lead and copper rule uh, for more than eight years. What are some insights uh, that you gained into the policy process and how do these different stakeholders interact on such higher rungs? Yeah, <laughs> the policymaking process has been an absolute eye-opener for me. The lead and copper rule is an EPA regulation and EPA has been preparing for the upcoming revisions to this rule since at least 2008. I mean, that's the, that was the first public stakeholder meetings that I remember my colleagues and I attending. And I remember that we were the only stakeholders in the room whose perspective was that of ordinary citizens. Most everyone else represented water industry perspectives. They were water utilities, overseeing states, engineering consulting firms, and folks who were, from my perspective, part of a professional drinking water world and whose questions and concerns struck me as being preoccupied with matters of cost and liability. And I remember that, that we spoke up a lot and we were asking quite hard questions. And at times it was clear that we put EPA in a difficult spot and, and everybody else who was watching in, in unease. And I remember that when this two-day meeting came to a close, someone told us that EPA wasn't used to having public stakeholders like us at these meetings. The, the public stakeholders that EPA was familiar with tended to represent the, you know, the professional drinking water world. And this was a very important piece of information for me, at least, because I think that it, it, it can't and, and it, it shouldn't be viewed as unrelated to the fact that the lead and copper rule today is built on a regulatory uh, compliance uh, regime that allows water utilities to check the box that all is okay and that the water is, is fine for people to drink, while at the same time many consumers are left inadequately protected and, and, and uninformed about lead that's coming out of their tap. Now, seven years later, and, and with the experience of more EPA meetings and exchanges and my journey through the EPA uh, National Drinking Water Advisory Council work group, I'm left with the impression that over the years, EPA seems to have developed a disturbingly cozy relationship with the water industry that it regulates. 
it almost feels like these two parties, the regulator on the one hand and the regulated entity on the other, have formed like a, a club of sorts. But yet EPA has practically no contact with ordinary members of the public whose lives have been directly affected by lead in water and the lead and copper rule. In fact, my request to EPA that it try to include such individuals, affected members of the public, um, into the work group almost caused paralysis, confusion among the organizers. They, they didn't seem to know how to do this. At first, I remember them saying that members of the public would bring to the table only opinions, not facts. I mean, that's an incredible statement, if you think about it. And then they said that they didn't have a protocol for including in advisory councils, such as the one that, uh, that they had just convened, uh, people who are not members of formal organizations. I mean, imagine that. Here is an agency uh, that oversees a federal policy that affects millions of ordinary people all across the country, but it doesn't have a protocol to allow for inclusion of any of these people uh, at uh, deliberations tables unless these people are officially affiliated with formal organizations. So to include consumer perspectives and interests, EPA ended up inviting several NGOs that EPA works with on other issues and that, in fact, had little to no knowledge at all about lead in water, the science of it, the policy of it, the history of it. After protests from my colleague Paul Schwartz with the Water Alliance and myself, EPA finally opened up one seat uh, for us. But the cards, I think, were stacked up against us from the beginning. In the end, five of the 15 workgroup members were water utilities selected carefully to represent the interests of powerful national water utility associations. And it, I think it became quite clear uh, to, to many of us that the process was designed in such a way as to amplify water utility interests and drown out opposing perspectives. What might be even worse is that this happened under the guise of public participation and, and a public participation mechanism that was purportedly there to make the process democratic. I can assure you that if this working group had included five affected members of the public who have spent years uh, educating themselves about lead in water and the lead and copper rule, and, the, 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 and there's, there's several people like that in D.C. and elsewhere. Just like the work group included five water utilities, I think that the recommendations that came out of this work group a few weeks ago would have been dramatically different. So what's the takeaway message, for me at least? It's that in environmental health, the name of, of an initiative or a program or a movement, an effort, whatever, like, for example, public participation or public engagement or citizen science or whatever it is, it does not tell you what any specific initiative or program or movement actually does or whose interests it truly serves, even if it sounds democratic and socially just. So we must always dig deep always look for the fine print 
before we celebrate things that on the surface seem new and forward thinking, but in reality may feed and embolden the status quo. Since I've known you personally, this question might be a little hard, but I'll still ask, how has a York work with the LCR affected you personally? What a great question this is and how rarely we ask it of ourselves and each other. The, the work that I've done in connection to the lead and copper rule has changed my life in defining ways. I think that who I am today personally really cannot be separated from the work that I've been involved in professionally. Specifically, I can think of three main impacts that I can share with you briefly. First is that as challenging as this journey has been, it has been a journey that I really chose. I, I chose it partly because I felt I had no choice <laughs> but to choose it because I felt it was my obligation as a citizen of this world to speak out against an injustice that literally came and hit me in the face. But I also chose it because I found it extremely meaningful on a personal, professional, and even existential level. This is work that I think I was prepared to do from the time I was born. And it is work that I believe in and feel proud about. And it is work that makes my conscience feel clean or unburdened. And what a crazy luxury this is. What a luxury it is to be able to speak the truth as you see it in a politically charged or treacherous or controversial setting. And to just every now and then, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't happen that often, but to every now and then see positive change come out of your and your allies' efforts. So the positive personal impact uh, that I see is that this work has allowed me to serve the powers to which I like to answer, the powers that I like to serve, which are powers that ask of me to, in some tiny little way, leave this planet in a better place than I found it. And, and what a privilege it is to feel that there have been moments when, with the help of my colleagues, I've been able to achieve this. Now, there is this, on the other hand, <laughs> piece. And, you know, on the other hand, I do feel that this work has also hurt me. It, it has shattered my fundamental belief that despite all of our differences as human beings, there are some basic human rights we all see as sacred. And to protect those rights, we're willing to act with curiosity, to learn, to educate ourselves, and to work together while placing our own self-interest or the interest of our, the various institutions that we're affiliated with, just placing those things on the side. In the past eight years, I have seen again and again good and hardworking and respectable adults whose job it is to protect our children from a completely preventable environmental neurotoxicant, deny well-established facts, obfuscate, mislead, lie, and at the end of the day become complicit cogs in a larger machine that causes irreparable harm to innocent people and in some cases result in lifelong struggle and mourning and grief. So I have become less trusting of what appears as goodness, honesty, genuineness. 
I now walk in the world of environmental health with the assumption that much of what seems to be might be smoke and mirrors, that today, you know, I, I've come to the point where I no longer care if someone works for a corporation or government agency or academia or nonprofit or consulting firm, NGO, whatever. I build trust slowly, no matter who that individual is. And, and that, the trust comes only after an individual's repeated demonstrations that they're willing to take risks to uncover the truth and preserve their personal and professional integrity in the process. So I think that I'm hardened and one might say that that's good, that it's a sign of growth or maturity or, uh, you know, finally accepting how the real world works, maybe. But I think that there's a paradox to this that, that gives me pause sometimes. I fear that operating from a hardened place can actually in and of itself possibly reinforce and perpetuate distrust. And that can actually maybe undermine my own work. So I don't want it, but it's just something that really makes me think. And lastly, um, a personal impact that I can think of is the humility and agony that I sometimes experience from the, I feel, I experience as defiling effects of any fight for justice. At the end of the day, I think that injustice and the enormous imbalances of power that usually come with it can poison even a witness, let alone its victims. And when you decide to fight against injustice, in some ways, I think that you commit yourself to daily immersion into the, the dirtiness of the harm and into the mindsets of the people, sometimes very lovely people, but people who caused or perpetuated this harm. I personally experienced that as defiling, and I suspect that in my work, I have taken actions myself that maybe have caused harm or went too strong or were not appropriate exactly or were insensitive or maybe they even targeted at times the wrong people. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure, but I do ask this question of myself frequently. And, and I wonder, you know, I, I, I wonder about that. I, I always pray that the bad that I'm fighting against doesn't end up sucking me into its vortex by turning me into some type of destructive worrier, if you will, that I don't want to be. So the impact of all this on me is perpetual questioning of myself and my actions. Through this work, I have arrived at the belief that the line between doing good and doing bad can sometimes be fine. And that heroism and wrongdoing might sit closer than we often think. I don't want to cross over to the side I'm fighting, but the line is actually not always visible to me. It's not always clear. So I worry and reflect. And I think I will always worry and reflect. It's just a, a humbling position to be in. Not many people know this, but you are now officially a US citizen. Um, for someone who has been advocating for bettering U.S. laws for several years, how does it feel? 
And does this change anything? Right. Well, you know, I don't think that my uh, new uh, U.S. citizenship changes much in relation to my work because environmental contaminants and bad policies, bad regulations really knock on all doors, not just on those of citizens. And in fact, they tend to affect disenfranchised individuals, including low-income non-citizens disproportionately. So I think that whether we're citizens or non-citizens of the countries that we inhabit, if our life circumstances allow it, we have a duty and a right to speak up about situations that affect us and that affect our, our children and our families and our neighbors and that we believe cause uh, serious or preventable harm. How has being with the DC lead crisis and advising towards reforming the lead and copper rule altered your research lenses? Um, how did engineering ethics enter the equation as a consequence of what you were doing and seeing? Um, where did your curiosity and inspired, among other things, the National Science Foundation grant uh, to teach a class um, towards overhauling how scientists and engineers are trained? Through the years, Mark and I experienced hundreds of moments where scientists and engineers in water utilities and government agencies betrayed the very people that they were getting paid to protect, and even worse, where they continued the betrayal even after getting caught. So really, we, we, you know, in, in processing this together, we, we were just asking so many questions like, who teaches these realities to students in college and graduate school today? That was really a question that occupied us for a long time. And, and then there were others too, like how did the scientists and engineers we saw um, engage in wrongdoing in, in Washington DC or in different you know, federal agencies around the country? How did, how did they differ from students in college and graduate school today? Or was there anything about science and engineering education that fosters alienation? This, this capacity to misuse one's professional power to such an extent as to knowingly place innocent people's lives at risk. You know, and, and then we were also asking, you know, are, are there tools that students could be getting but are not that would help them navigate the workplace in such a way as to be able to preserve their personal and professional integrity and do good rather than harm. I personally, uh, influenced by my own training in medical anthropology, became especially interested in engineers' relationship with the public. I, I couldn't help but notice that engineers routinely make decisions on behalf of you know, diverse communities that they practically have no contact with at all. They, they may, you know, not know almost anything about the communities, about their values, about their interests, their ways of life, their diverse knowledges, their capabilities and resources. Uh, you know, uh, th there, there might be really just a deep darkness around these issues. 
In the case of Washington, D.C., as, as in many other cases of environmental contamination like it, it was actually ordinary residents who first uncovered the problem and who quickly enough developed technical expertise that at times surpassed that of most experts. So why are the voices of such individuals routinely ignored by engineers? Would our society tolerate doctors who continuously ignore what their patients have to say about their symptoms or their medical preferences? These are my research questions, and I feel deeply indebted to the National Science Foundation for making it possible for Mark and myself to create an ethics class that we have tried really hard uh, to, to design in such a way that it engages and troubles and inspires students, hopefully long after they graduate. My goal personally is to plant one message somewhere in the vast field of engineering ethics education, and that is that no engineer is in a position to make morally sound decisions about matters affecting the lives of real publics without consulting with these publics and understanding what is locally at stake. In other words, good ethics requires robust representation. And I think engineers have a moral obligation to ensure that public voices are truly heard. Jana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sid. It was really a pleasure.